Amen. You may be seated, church. Oof. What a joy. Man. Sometimes the songs are just like they hit in such a way that I'm like, why do I got to go up and talk right after that? That's better than what I'm about to say. <laughs> Sorry. A little preview there. <laughs> Oh, good morning, church. What a joy to be together. Thank you for braving the cold, choosing to worship with us today. It's uh, good to be in a warm building talking about how good Jesus is. Amen. Amen. I love, I love, we're in the perfect spot in the Midwest, the perfect spot where we're, we're far enough north that most of us know how to drive in the snow, but far enough south that we're not going to. So we, uh, we take every excuse to stay home. And like any Michiganders in the room are like, people stayed home because it's cold? Like, <laughs> oh, my, uh, my, some of you guys know my older brother uh, is living in Mongolia right now, Ulaanbaatar in the, the capital of Mongolia. We got to talk to him a couple times over the last couple weeks with the, with the holiday. And he has not gotten above freezing there in over a month. <laughs> Oh, man. And so I was, you know, just sending him screenshots of the current temperature in St. Louis. But uh, anyway, <laughs> glad you guys are here. We're doing something a little different today. We're, we're taking just a quick pause from Acts. After today, we're going to be in Acts until we finish it. So starting next Sunday, we're going to jump back in Acts, and we're going to stick there literally until Easter. We'll finish it right before Easter and then go into the Easter season, uh, and it'll be cool. So, But today... Today we're doing something a little different. I'm, 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 we're going to be in John chapter 4 today, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there. But, but just kind of thinking about first, first uh, kind of Sunday together in the new year, kind of thinking through, just kind of, you know, we have this, this cultural invitation in the new year to just do some self-reflection. And I know, I know not all of us in the room are super introspective and maybe you don't do this sort of thing, but, but I actually love this sort of thing. I am like, as cheesy as it is and as much as people make fun of it, like I love New Year's resolutions and goals and those things. I just think, I think those things can actually be really helpful, instructive, like self-evaluative tools to, to sit and kind of look at yourself soberly and set set goals for, for personal growth. And so I want to talk about that idea a little bit today. And, and the reason is this. We all know the stereotype about New Year's resolutions and goals, right? Like February 1st is where New Year's resolutions go to die. Like that whole, that whole joke, right? And, and there is a reality that if you can just set goals for yourself and get just a little hit of dopamine because it feels good to set a goal and then never do anything about it and it's just pointless. And so there are, are all sorts of ways that this kind of introspection can actually be completely fruitless. If, if you're not making goals that are specific, if you're not making goals that are contextualized to you, those sorts of things. You know, my, my goal to eat less Cheetos in 2022 is probably not specific or helpful enough or contextualized enough to my life to really do much. I probably have to get like a little more narrowed in, like, like maybe like I will eat no more than one body pillow sized bag of Costco Cheetos per month. For a total of no more than 12 body pillows of Cheetos over the course of 2020. Like that kind, you know what I'm saying? Like that level of specific, that's, that's, you know, not realistic, but that is, <laughs> that is a practical goal. Uh, but no, 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 no. I, 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 I say all that to kind of bring it home here. I say all that to say, one of my prayers for you guys over the last couple of weeks, thinking about this new year together, us as this brand new church stepping into 2022, one of my biggest prayers for all of us is that we would be the kind of people who actually take our faith, our spiritual journey seriously enough that we actually have goals for our growth in Christ. 
One of my prayers for us, for myself and for all of us, is that 2022 would be a year where, where each one of us actually grows in dependence on Jesus. Where we're sitting in this space the same time next year, and there is tangible difference in how we engage each other, how we engage the Lord, how we view ourselves, the depth of our faith. I, I really, and I'm, I'm serious when I say this, I really hope you guys are actually considering what it looks like to kind of have this cultural invitation for a blank slate to think, man, what, what might this year bring for you and your faith? What might this year bring for, for your family and their faith? Kim and I have this tradition, it's going back several years, where we take a date in late September and sit down in or December and, and, and do this kind of thing. We do some evaluation on the year and talk about blessings we saw and hardships we faced and pray through things we want to see happen in our family and our marriage and our parenting, and our spiritual health, and our professional goals, those sorts of things. And I really think it can be a helpful discipline. I really think it can be something that's actually good for us. My, I, I genuinely believe, and hear me when I say this, because I'm going to use this phrase a, a couple times today. I genuinely believe that each and every one of us can actually be filled with Christ this year. That we can actually set aside, like, like actually look to our own lives, look to our goals, look to our plans, and go, I want to be full of Jesus. I want to be so full of Jesus that he overflows out of me. And I, I, I believe that that is actually something that is available to you and I to pursue, to actually live that out. So, John 4. This might be a familiar passage for some of you guys. Uh, if it is, you know, good. <laughs> um, but we're going to read, this is a longer story. We're going to start in the first verse of John 4. It says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus said to her, go, tell your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, will, you worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left, left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, this morning as we take a few minutes to discuss your word, Lord, we ask that you would be present. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do your ministry to and for us, that you would remind us of things we've forgotten, that you would encourage us in areas of weakness and failing, that you would teach us new truths about who you are and what you do, and that ultimately, Jesus, we would leave this space having heard from you what our heart actually needs. We love you, Jesus. We trust you for this work. So we pray it in your name. Amen. So like I said, that was a relatively long text, has a, has a pretty in-depth look at a very specific conversation Jesus had. What I'd like to do for us today is go back through this text and put just some of the historical and textual and cultural context around it. Some of you guys probably already know some of that stuff, but let's kind of hit that afresh and kind of give ourselves clear eyes on what's going on in this text. And I ultimately think that's going to give us just this really clear image of the invitation that Jesus gives to his followers to come and be satisfied and be filled with him. That's going to lead us to one of Jeremiah's prophecies in the Old Testament. And ultimately, we're going to end our time with just some time for consideration and reflection on how we might pursue Christ together in this new year. Sound good? Awesome. So here's where we're at with this. We're, we're, we're kind of near the beginning of John's gospel. And if you, if you read John's gospel next to the other ones, he tells the story really uniquely. In John's telling of Jesus's life, he centers it around several trips back and forth by Jesus from Galilee to Judea, from Nazareth and, and Capernaum in that area down to Jerusalem. We actually have a map here, if you can pop that up for me. Boop. Just in case you're not so this is in case you don't have this geography on tap in your mind, right? In, in this point in human history, God's people are underneath Roman rule, and what was ancient Israel has been divided up into multiple provinces under the Roman Empire. Now, the vast majority, even though Jewish culture and religion was spread over the whole known world at that point, the vast majority of Jewish culture existed in two main areas. In Judea, in the south there, near the city of Jerusalem, around the Dead Sea, and then north of that, in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. This is kind of the two main populations of Jewish people. You have in the south, in the Judean section, you have the more educated, urbanized, white-collar Jewish population up north in Galilee. It's more rural. You have more agrarian society. But ultimately, these are both deeply Jewish cultures, which wouldn't be a problem except for what sits right in the middle. You guys see Samaria sitting right there in the middle. Now, if you've been in church more than five minutes, you probably already know this piece, but Jews don't like Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't like Jews. And the reason is simple for this, although it makes zero sense. 
The reason is because the Samaritans were Jewish, but they weren't Jewish enough. So remember, in the Old Testament, after David's reign and after Solomon's reign, Israel was divided in a pretty brutal civil war that split the nation into two countries, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Those two nations were both destroyed by God as divine punishment for breaking covenant with him, but they happened at different times and by different foes. The northern kingdom fell first under the Assyrian Empire, and the southern kingdom fell later under the Babylonian Empire, which doesn't sound like, like, okay, what's the big deal? The difference is these two empires treated their conquered peoples differently. The Assyrians did a forced deportation. As they conquered different regions and their empires got bigger and bigger, they realized we can't really control these people super well and we don't want to have a revolution on our hands. So when they conquered a region, they would force everyone in that region to be divided up into multiple groups and disperse them all over the rest of the empire and then bring other people in to live. And they essentially just shuffled the deck enough that people couldn't organize a decent rebellion against them. So the northern kingdom, which represents a good nine or 10 tribes is dispersed throughout the Assyrian empire and basically ceases to exist. What happens is, and by the way, Samaria was the capital of the Northern kingdom. What happens is these forced refugees are brought into what was the Northern kingdom after the Assyrians conquered them. And over the generations and generations between when Israel fell and Jesus's day, those people intermixed and they created kind of their own new culture, which is the Samaritan culture. The Samaritans considered themselves Jewish and most of their religious practices were pretty Jewish. But there's a couple things we have to remember about them. The first one is, before the northern kingdom even fell, they were already drifting away really seriously from the covenant with God at Sinai and actual biblical worship. In fact, they had ceased to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, and had begun to worship on a mountaintop at some high places or altars that were built. And they had already intermixed some pagan worship and religiosity into their worship. And over the course of 10, 20 generations, as foreign peoples are brought in, that Jewish culture and identity and worship was diluted even more. So that by the time, by the time that the Jews are able to return to the southern kingdom, right? If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, those two stories, if you go back and read those, when the Jewish people who were in exile came back to kind of reestablish Jerusalem and they met the Samaritans, the people who'd been there the whole time, they basically said, yeah, you don't count as Jewish. You're not Jewish anymore. And then they even forced them, you can go back and read this in Ezra, to kind of go through their genealogies. And when they couldn't confirm their Jewish genealogies, they looked at these peoples and said, you have no part with us. You don't get to help us rebuild the temple. You don't get to be a part of our culture. So generations later, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Samaritans and the Jews, they, they don't just have like enmity, they have deep abiding hatred. And it comes down to this idea that the Samaritans say, we never left. We were here the whole time. We're descendants of Abraham. We get to determine, like, we're the ones who weren't spread out all over the world. We're good Jews. And the Jews said, no, you're not. Because to be Jewish, you have to follow this book and you have to be a descendant of Abraham. We're good Jews. And they grew in this deep, deep hatred. So by the time Jesus' ministry happens, it's relatively normative for the Jewish population to need to travel back and forth between Galilee and Judea because Jewish worship centers around the temple. 
But Jewish folk hated the Samaritans so much that many Jewish folk, especially well-known teachers like, oh, I don't know, traveling rabbis, would literally cross over the Jordan River and add multiple weeks to their trip to avoid stepping foot on Samaritan ground. This is why Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is so insanely radical. See, for us, the whole phrase Good Samaritan has become so built into our culture that it's a cliche for a nice person, right? But in Jesus' day, the idea that a Samaritan would stop and help a Jew in need was, was unthinkable. It was so outside the realm of possibility. We, we, we forget that, right? So when John's telling of the gospel, Jesus makes multiple journeys back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem, which would have been relatively normal for a rabbi in his day. But what sets Jesus apart already is that he has zero problem traveling straight through Samaria, just walking straight through, which is how this story picks up. He's making his way from Jerusalem back to Galilee, and he's traveling north through Samaria. And it's a pretty long, hot journey. There's a lot of desert. They're in the Middle East, right? So he gets tired and decides to rest in the city called Sychar at Jacob's well. Now, we don't know specifically which well this is. It's probably the well that Jacob dug either in Genesis 29 or Genesis 33. Like, there's a couple stories there. We don't know specifically because the geography gets a little fuzzy. But this is an old, old, old well. This literally goes back to the time of Genesis. This goes back to some of the earliest inhabitants of this land. This is deeply rooted in the Samaritan self-identity, is that this is our land and we never left right? We've been here the whole time. We are sons of Jacob, just like the Jews claim to be, right? So Jesus is sitting at this well, hanging out, resting, and his disciples go to give him some food. They, they, they leave him sitting there. And, and by the way, this, I think, speaks perfectly to how intense the hatred was between the average Jew and the average Samaritan, that his disciples leave him at this well at noon in the heat of day. And the reason is simple. They know that wherever Jesus goes, he preaches and heals people and it takes a long time. And they don't want to hang out here. So they go, hey, Jesus, you stay here where no one is around, <laughs> where you're not going to talk. We'll go get some food and come back and then we can get the heck out of Dodge. So they leave and head into town. But God is sovereign and he sets this stuff up and he's, he's no, nobody's anybody, right? He knows exactly what he's doing. And as Jesus is sitting at this well at noon, a woman comes along to draw water. Now, this tells us a couple things. The big thing is, you don't come to the well at noon to draw water. This is probably the most important part of this, of how we understand this woman. The reason for that is, is, is multiple, but to go through a couple of things, this is the hottest part of the day, right? And they carried water in very large jugs, maybe 30, 40 gallons at a time. This is hot, hard work. You don't do it at noon. You do it before the sun comes up so that you don't die of heat stroke between the well and your house, right? But this lady comes to the well at noon. You don't come to the well at noon unless you have a really good reason. Remember, this is before the day of indoor plumbing. Whatever water you get from the well is the water you have for the day. So, I don't know, cooking meals, cleaning things, bathing, ceremonial stuff, like all of the above. Whatever water you get in the morning is the water you have. So coming to the well at noon is really strange. The only reason you would do it is because you want to be at the well by yourself. Because you don't want anyone to see you, talk to you, have conversation with you while you're at the well. The whole town comes to the well in the morning 
and waits in line and gets water to take care of their home and take care of their family and do whatever they need. But this lady shows up six hours later at the hottest part of the day when she's pretty much confident no one's going to be there. Except she finds Jesus. And Jesus immediately asks her for a drink. Hey, can I have a drink of water? This is, this is wild on several levels. I, I know for, for us as kind of modern Western readers, like there's this intellectual piece where we're like, yeah, I know this is weird. I've heard this text talked about. But the reality is like this, this doesn't strike us as all that odd, right? Jesus is traveling in the heat of the day. It's hot. He's tired. These wells are deep and they're really precious, important resources. You don't leave the tools to access the well at the well. You have to bring them with you. So he's sitting there with no way of getting water out of the well, and he's thirsty. And some lady walks up with the pry bar and the rope and the bucket, and he's like, hey, can I get a drink of that? I'm seriously thirsty. It seems normal, right? But this is wild. It's wild for a couple of reasons. The first one we already talked about. This woman's a Samaritan, and Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. This is not the kind of conversation a respectable, well-known rabbi has, period. In fact, a lot of good, faithful Jews would probably rather sit and just thirst than ask a Samaritan for help. It's how intense the, the enmity is between these peoples. But Jesus puts himself kind of at the mercy of this woman, saying, hey, will you help me? Will you serve me? Will you give to me? Which is really, really strange. Beyond that, she's a woman and he's a man, which again, not that weird in our society. But in this day, this was actually incredibly inappropriate for a man to talk to a random woman he met in public without her husband or father present was actually pretty, not, not just rude, it was a little scandalous. And again, go back to the fact that Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, which is easy to identify when you see a guy. And he dressed like a Jewish rabbi. He's got his whole deal. You can tell when you look at him. And so for a rabbi to ask a Samaritan woman to help him is just, it's just outside the realm of possibility. And I know that's like a really intense way to say it, but we need that piece. Because for us as modern readers, we read this and it all just kind of seems reasonable up to this point. But this is an insane interaction. This, this just straight up wouldn't happen. So her response is really normative. She basically just says, what are you doing? <laughs> what is this? Why are you talking to me? This is really strange. A very reasonable response to what's happening in the moment. But we know that Jesus doesn't have random conversations. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so we get this amazing conversation, this intimate look at this one-on-one -on -one private conversation that Jesus has with this woman, where he gives us this beautiful biblical analogy for our connection to Christ, for the kingdom of God and the workings of the gospel. What he says to her is, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What he's basically saying is, yeah, I know this is weird, but if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink instead of the other way around. Again, the woman's response is actually really reasonable. Uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> that makes no sense. 
uh, I'm the one with the rope and the pry bar in the bucket. Where are you going to get some water, bud? And, and, and by the way, I think at this point, she probably just assumes this guy's messing with her. And here's what I mean by that. Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. But they didn't just not like each other. They were actively, like, publicly hateful to one another. They literally invented insults centered around one another. It's a, like, that level of hatred. And so when this woman walks up on a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, like, she's probably just assuming, okay, this is some setup for you to say something hateful to me and be super mean. Cool, whatever. And so she gets kind of defensive, right? And goes, this is Jacob's well. He gave it to our ancestors. You think you're better than Jacob? Like, what's the deal here, right? Like, she's, she's waiting for the teeth to come down. And so she preemptively gets a little defensive. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, his sons and his livestock. She's basically saying, hey, look, before you say whatever it is you're going to say, just know I'm just as Jewish as you are, so I don't care if you're about to be hateful. Which again, this kind of makes sense. But what she doesn't realize is that Jesus could care less about the posturing between Samaritans and Jews. He's not interested in this hatred, in this enmity, in this rivalry. This is the same Jesus who, who told the temple leaders that God could create sons of Abraham from stones if he saw fit. So he's not super caught up in whether or not the Samaritans are Jewish enough to be Jewish, right? And so he says, speaking to her actual need, cutting through the moment. Everyone who drinks water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is just a well. It gives water to thirsty people and animals. But Jesus says, I'm doing something different. He's starting to point to the fact that this isn't just a casual conversation about a well, but let her know, like, no, 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 I'm speaking to something deeper, something actually built in to the human heart. The water of my well gives something eternal. But the woman misses it, which again, by the way, totally reasonable. She didn't come to this well to have a conversation about the gospel or the kingdom of God. Like, she came here to avoid people. And so she basically just goes, uh, maybe even a little bit sarcastically, right? Okay, if you have water that will make me not thirsty anymore, I'll bite. Give me some. That sounds great. Yeah, I'd love to not have to come to the well anymore. But now Jesus is ready. See, now Jesus is actually going to give this woman the living water. He's going to actually like, bring the kingdom, bring the gospel to bear on this moment. He's going to speak to the actual need of her soul, but it's going to be shocking and it's going to hurt. So he says to her, go and call your husband and come here. Now this, by the way, is a really appropriate thing to say. He shouldn't be speaking to her in public. He shouldn't be speaking to a woman without her father or husband near. And she looks to be married age. And so he says, go and get your husband. But what we see as the text goes on is that Jesus here is just cutting straight into her heart. I have no husband, she responds. But Jesus cuts deeper because he knows what's going on here. He's showing her right now that he sees her. And I mean he really sees her. He sees not just a random woman, not just a stranger, not just a Samaritan, but he sees her. 
He's her creator, her God, the lover of her soul, which means he sees her sin. He sees her shame. He sees her failure. He sees the deep, secret parts of her that would draw her to the well at noon in the heat of the day. I know you're not married. You're a serial adulterer and you're currently living with a man you're not married to. Cut straight to the deepest thing. And this part is so key. Jesus, in bringing the gospel to bear in this woman's life, has given, like, spared nothing. He's cut to the heart of the matter. And you gotta know, it was not a pleasant moment for this woman to have that part of her just thrust up into the light with a stranger. Cut through everything else and exposed the deepest parts of her heart. And by the way, he does this in private without shaming her or condemning her publicly. He's simply letting her know, woman, I see you. I see you. And she does what most of us would do. She deflects and tries to take the conversation back to a safe subject like why Jews and Samaritans hate each other. But Jesus won't go there. This is not about Jews and Samaritans. This is about Jesus and the woman. This is about her facing her creator. So Jesus cuts through the mess in the conversation again. Doesn't matter how much Jews and Samaritans fight. What matters is people who worship God with their whole person, with their whole heart, in spirit and in truth. And then he asks her this question Do you know? Do you know that God's going to send his Messiah to restore all things? I know you're, you're sitting here trying to bring it back to who got it right, the Samaritans or Jews, but do you know that the Messiah's coming and he'll restore all things? And she says, Yeah, I know that. And when he gets here, he'll, he'll, he'll clear the whole thing up. He'll fix the whole thing. He'll tell us all things. On the surface, she's still talking about the Messiah fixing the rupture between Jews and Samaritans. But at this point, beloved, don't, don't miss this. She knows, they both know, they're not talking about the Jews and Samaritans. They're talking about her, her sin, her separation from God, her shame, the need of her heart. When the Messiah gets here, he'll fix all this. And Jesus' response, I love this, is, yeah, he will. He's here. He's me. Whew. Now, by the way, I shouldn't do what I'm about to do because it just breaks it. This is like the emotional crux of this story. It's so stinking powerful. As I was studying it this week, I couldn't get out of my mind that Star Wars meme with Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know what I'm talking about? Can you put that up for me? He's me. I'm sorry if that just pulled you out of the moment, but I just, I had to get past that distraction or I was going to obsess over it the rest of the time. (laughs) But joking aside, I love this scene. Jesus comes to this woman and he offers her the real need of her soul. You were coming to this well at noon because sin has made your life a mess. You don't want to talk to me because sin has made Jews and Samaritans separate. But I'm going to cut through all of that. And I'm going to offer you the needs of your real soul. I will quench the real thirst in you, the longing of your soul for the broken things to be fixed, the longing in your soul to be connected to your God. You want to be connected to your creator? 
or he's right here in front of you. So come, drink of this well, be filled. Know that he loves you. And because Jesus has a flair for the dramatic, right? This reveal is right at the moment when the disciples get back with the food. And you can just kind of imagine the scene, right? As all the guys are kind of talking, like holding a bunch of food and they walk up and there's just kind of this moment where they freeze and maybe like Peter drops something, you know? They're kind of going, uh, what is going on right here? The text even tells us that they were like so shocked and embarrassed that Jesus is having a private conversation with a random woman he doesn't know that they all just kind of sit there going, should we say something right now? But the woman drops her jug and runs back into town and begins sharing with the whole community. The people that just an hour before she was doing her best to avoid she now running door to door saying, come see, I, I just met the Messiah. He saw me, he, he saw my real, but come, come see him. And by the way, the way the story concludes is exactly what the disciples feared would happen. The Samaritans come out and they hear the gospel and they hear Jesus' teaching and Jesus stays there for days, loving and ministering and serving these people. And by the way, if you fast forward into Acts, when Jesus resurrects and he establishes the church, one of the first missions he gives the church is take the gospel to Samaria. And one of the first things that happens in Acts is that the Spirit comes to the Samaritans and anoints them the same way he anointed the Jews at Pentecost. And all peoples are included in the kingdom. Oof, it's amazing. But this, way back, way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, before, before the cross, before the resurrection, before Acts, Jesus is already walking into Samaria because he doesn't care about the division and preaching the gospel to people he loves who desperately need his forgiveness. Man, what a scene. This woman has met the Messiah. She's met the lover of her soul who, who sees her sin and her shame and offers her grace and living water. So, I love this. In this moment, this woman is so full of Christ that she leaves her bucket, doesn't even fill it. And even though she leaves her bucket sitting at the well, she returns to her town full of Christ. Full of him. So full of him that it splashes out of her. That it overflows into this woman who literally moments before is doing her best in her shame to avoid her neighbors, is now seeking out her neighbors and telling them of the hope, telling them of the ministry of the Messiah. Come see the one who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah we've been waiting for? What a transformation, just like that. So full of Christ, that he flows out of her. Man, this is one of my favorite narratives in Scripture. It's so, it's so beautiful and perfectly composed, and the drama happens at like just the right moments, Right? There's so many things we could focus on and dive into, but today I want us to consider what it means to intentionally make Christ a part of our goal setting for the new year, right? That's where I started us out. I want to wrap back to that. There's one aspect of this story that I would like for us to consider, and it's this image that Jesus uses to invite the woman into his kingdom. He invites her to drink living water from a better well than the well of Jacob. And this is an analogy, right? But but this is an analogy that actually has a long history in Scripture. You have to remember, water was a really important resource if you lived in the days before aqueducts and plumbing in the desert, right? Like, 
water's pretty important. And if you go back and read the first, you know, the Torah, like digging wells was a really like not just a physical, it was a very, it was a very intense whole person type experience. Like wars were fought over wells. Like it was a really important thing because wells and cisterns were the difference between life and death in this part of the world. You need access to a good well, and you need access to a good cistern, or you die, period. Like, that's how this world works. We can forget that a little bit because we all have running water, right? But that's, that's the world within which Jesus lived. And so this analogy of the good well, the better well, the living water, this actually runs deep in the story of Scripture. God uses this image relatively often in the ministry of the prophets. He calls himself the well. They need to turn to him, that God's people need to turn away from idolatry and sin and turn to him to stop drinking from other wells and bad wells and bad cisterns and come to him for life. One of my favorite examples of this is in Jeremiah chapter 2. God is in the midst of rebuking Israel for rejecting their covenant with him and turning over and over and over to idolatry. And he says this, Therefore, I contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will continue to contend. For cross to the coast, for cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea, and, and send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing where a nation has rejected its God, even though they don't even have real gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled. All creation at this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. This is verse 13 of chapter 2. For my people Israel has committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain, the well of living water, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that don't hold water. God looks at idolatry. He looks at his people rejecting him and turning to other things for life and satisfaction. And the image he uses to, to, to rebuke this is of his people turning from a good well to a bad cistern. If you don't know this, by the way, cisterns are like big old just holes they dig to hold water <laughs> when there's not a lot. You've turned from a good well to an empty, cracked cistern that leaks and look what it's doing to you. This is the image God uses. This is a way of saying that choosing idolatry is choosing death. To reject a good will, a well, and trust in a cracked cistern may not be death today, tomorrow, or even next week, but it is death. In a land where your access to water is the difference between life and death, to, to seal up a good well and go to a gross, cracked, leaking, draining cistern is to sign your own death warrant. The death is certain. Is this not a perfect picture of the world within which we live? Turning from God and trusting the things of this world to fill and care and provide and sustain, even though we know they won't. Beloved, let's be honest for a moment. Is this not a picture of us do we not turn from the good well of our sweet Jesus and seek to be filled and cared for by the things of this world? Do we not look for security in wealth or in relationships? Do we not look for our comfort in sex or food or entertainment? Do we not look for identity in work or position or success or recreation? We, all of us, beloved, 
turn to cracked cisterns all the time. Seeking good water where we know what we'll find is brackish and dirty. It's water, but it doesn't satisfy our thirst. The idols we all turn to again and again, they don't give us what our hearts desire. They don't give us peace. They don't heal us. They don't give us safety. They don't give us real love. But we turn to these idols over and over and over and over. And many of us, if we're honest, in the deep parts of our heart, the parts that we keep covered and don't share because it's not polite, are in a similar place to the woman at the well than we'd like to admit. Many of us carry pretty deep and consistent shames that then fuel and change the way we interact with the world, that fuel and change the way we choose to speak to people, who we choose to spend time with, how we choose to share, what kind of masks and walls we choose to put up. Many of us are much closer to that woman's life than we are willing to admit. But beloved of Jesus, today as we step into the new year, let me remind us all that our sweet Jesus He sees us. He sees you. He genuinely sees you in your idolatry, in your sin, in your shame, in your habits of returning to the broken cisterns over and over and over, in your anger and pride, in your hopelessness and despair, in your escapism and your numbness. Fill in the blanks. He sees you as you draw from that cistern over and over. And he loves you. And he cares for you. And he is not turned away by our idolatry. Rather, he offers what our persons actually need. He offers us life and forgiveness. Beloved, Jesus truly is the good well. He truly is the living water that actually meets the needs of the human soul. That offers you not just forgiveness from your sin, but but the power to actually walk in freedom from sin. And actually offers you his righteousness that you might live in holiness. That you might have connection with your God and your creator. That you might have eternal life in him. Yes, that stretches into forever. Yes, that's heaven. Yes, that's then. But beloved, that is also now. Your Jesus offers for you to walk in peace and forgiveness and freedom here and now. Truly, he is the living water. Truly, he loves us. As you consider the new year and what it might hold for you, I'm asking you, genuinely, as your pastor, as a brother in Christ, consider planning your year around drinking deep from the good well of Jesus. What would it look like? What would it mean for you to intentionally fill yourself up with Jesus this year? to drink from that real well of living water. I know that's an analogy, right? So it can, it can just get kind of like this thing that sounds really good to us in the moment, but it doesn't have much practical application in our life as we leave a space like this. So, so what, would, what would that actually mean? What would that look like? How would that change your life? I'm here to tell you, beloved, if you want to be a part of the work of the kingdom, if you want to join with Jesus in seeking and saving the lost, whether that's here in St. Louis or all over the world in places like Columbia, The only way to genuinely join with Jesus in his work in this world is to be so full of him that he overflows out of your heart into the world around you. When the woman at the well was filled with Jesus, he spilled out of her. 
And she couldn't help but go and speak to her neighbors. Jesus tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is in you will come out of you. As Christ pours into you, he will pour out of you, beloved. So, let's be a people who are full of Jesus. Let's be a people who drink from the well. Consider making that a priority this year. That might mean a bunch of different things to us as you think through your own life and where you're at and what your next steps are. That might mean looking at our new church together and just going, you know what? I'm going to be all in. I'm going to commit to this thing. I'm here. I'm here for the long haul. I'm going to experience this even though, even though it's hard and weird. I'm going to do it. That might mean jumping into one of our gospel communities or, or seeking out a discipleship group so that you can grow in deep community and friendship and study the word and get into confession with each other. That might mean confessing deep-rooted sin in your life for the first or 81st time and getting help finding freedom. You might need to jump into our sexual integrity discipleship group to find freedom from unwanted sexual behavior in your life. You might need to talk to a pastor to help you get connected with counseling to work through deep hurts in your story and your heart. You might need to commit to actually engaging in spiritual disciplines, like actually getting in the Word and reading it and memorizing it and learning how to fast and learning how to pray and learning how to sing loud and inviting people into that journey with you. I just named a bunch of stuff. I don't know what that will look like specifically for you, but I know this, guys. It will look like something because we have not arrived. God has not vacuumed our souls up to heaven. He has left us here, which means each and every one of us has a next step of faith. There is something in front of you for you to grow in dependence on Christ, for you to grow in freedom in Christ, for you to grow in joy in Christ. It is there. We can all be more full of Jesus. Amen? And here's the amazing part. And here's how I'll leave. If you want to come up here, Chris. You can be full of Jesus. That's the, like, that's the best part of this story. He loves you. He's not, he's not put off by the depths of your sin. He's actually available to you. He's, he's actually living water. His living water is there. And this is the best part, church. It's free. It's available. All you need to do is draw from the well and drink deep. I'll end us with this amazing image from the end of the book of Revelation. As John was getting this, this image from Jesus of what things will look like when Jesus returns and finally makes all things new, at the very end, in Revelation 21, he says this, Jesus said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Hear this, beloved. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water life without cost. Beloved, as we take a minute sing a song and take communion together. I would encourage you in whatever way you need to this morning, come to the lover of your soul. Come speak to him. If you need to get on your knees and pray, if you need to grab a pastor, if you need to get a little space where you can be by yourself with Jesus for a minute, before we leave this space today, come to the lover of your soul. Come and drink deep. Come and drink of the life he offers. Beloved, come and be filled with Christ. Amen. Do the work you need to do with Jesus.